and welcome to Deep Dive, brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. I'm your host, Dr. Sajan Gohel. Each episode, we speak to experts and practitioners in international security and defense, counterterrorism, and geopolitical current events to gain insight into the most pressing matters of global affairs. In this episode, we speak to David Loyne, who was an award-winning foreign correspondent for 30 years for the BBC. He is an authority on Afghanistan, a country he has visited regularly. In 2017, David worked for a year as an advisor in the office of the Afghan president. His book, The Long War, uncovers the political and military strategies that tried to defeat the Taliban across two decades. David Loyne, thank you so much for joining us on NATO Deep Dive. It's very good to be with you, Sajjan. Thanks for the invitation. It's our pleasure. Let's begin by talking about the collapse of the Afghan government. There's going to be many postmortems, but in your opinion, was this inevitable? Did it sudden collapse? Explain what went wrong due to the Western withdrawal, or are there other factors at play? I think you have to go back to 2019 and the very swift decision that uh, the, the the swift uh, um, decision that President Trump made and the conditions that he put on it. The uh, the American negotiator Zalmay Khalilzad was told by President Trump effectively that he wanted to pull troops out of Afghanistan. That's what he went to try and negotiate. And so, what we had in Doha wasn't. Um, uh, any kind of conditional withdrawal on set on the Taliban. It was really just a withdrawal deal for the Americans to pull out, leaving behind some very vague assurances that the Taliban made on, uh, uh, on severing their links with Al-Qaeda and making demands of the Afghan government that they should release Taliban prisoners. So there was this quite swift timetable. And then, of course, the American election happened. The new administration came in and wanted to keep to that timetable uh, during the summer of, of 2021. And so we saw this swift drawdown of international troops and a consequent, and I think really what was missed at the time was that as American troops were drawing down, and of course NATO support was pulling out at the same time, but the American troops were the ones doing the uh, more of the, the fighting, more of the, the muscle end. NATO by that point were only doing train advice and assist. As the American troops were, were actually drawing, uh, drawing down and pulling out, they also pulled out thousands of contractors who were doing the key um, implementing uh, of, of the Afghan Air Force. They were providing software support for Afghan forces. They were providing all of the logistics um, and enablers for what had, we'd set up in Afghanistan, which is a relatively sophisticated modern force. So when all those enablers were pulled out, in the spring of summer of 2021, Afghan forces effectively collapsed and the the country fell ahead of them. I think the other key thing to remember in all this, alongside that political decision to withdraw, was a contested election, a weak Afghan government um, off the back of that contested election, and a strong sense in Afghanistan that um, as the Taliban moved forward, um, perhaps this uh, government that had run its course, that was seen as potentially corrupt, was something that people 
were willing to see the back of. As, so the Taliban effectively negotiated their way to power um, across the spring and summer of, uh, of 2021. And the other key thing that happened in those two years was the secret annexes to the Doha deal that Zalmay Khalilzad did with the Taliban, which meant that American forces could no longer attack the Taliban if they were moving across the countryside. Providing the Taliban didn't attack uh, Afghan cities and didn't attack certain key infrastructure nodes and, and road networks, um, they, were, they were given effectively carte blanche to move across the Afghan countryside. And the Afghan government didn't see those secret annexes until after the government fell. So they were operating blind, if you like, in terms of trying to protect their own country. And America was, um, American forces, I think, were frustrated watching Af uh, Taliban troops moving into countryside areas um, and not being able to prevent them from moving in. So that as America pulled out, the Taliban took over the country. Well, there are so many key factors that you've been talking about. The name Zalmi Khalilzad came up uh, several times in what you were saying. How much of the blame does he have to bear when it comes to what has now taken place in Afghanistan? He's an extraordinary character. When the history of Afghanistan is written, I mean, I've, <laughs> I've written two books on it, but perhaps I should write another one just about him. I mean, he's written his own autobiography um, on, on his story. But I mean, his, his Afghan experience, of course, he was born there, he went to school there, he was knew Ashraf Ghani, the president, very well. They were just a couple of years apart in school. And uh, then went to American University abroad and then, of course, became an American citizen. And in 1988, 1989, he was part of the American negotiating team negotiating the end of the Russian war. So he had very long experience in Afghanistan, as well as then being ambassador um, in, in the years after 9-11. Um, he was very close to President Bush's administration, very much a sort of neocon hawk, somebody who thought that the wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan were things that America ought to fight. Um, and I think when it came to actually drawing down in Afghanistan, um, perhaps he wasn't the best man to choose for the job. But as I said at the beginning, he was given an impossible task because the alternative, which many people were pushing, certainly in the United Kingdom and in some other NATO countries, was for a much longer um, uh, period of, of drawing down and much more of a sense of a conditional withdrawal longer peace talks, bringing the Taliban to the negotiating table um, with the Afghan government, giving the Afghan government every capacity that it had to do those negotiations. But instead of that, we pulled the rug from under the feet of the Afghan government um, with, this, with this withdrawal deal and effectively handed the country over to the Taliban. So would another individual have been able to, to do a different sort of deal? I think at the end of the day, President Trump wanted the troops out there was always a danger that he might just announce an even more precipitate withdrawal, um, as he, he did in some other in some other conflicts. You know, very swift, um, abrupt military decisions made uh, that would have destabilized Afghanistan even more. So I think you could argue that Zalmay Khalilzad played a really, really difficult hand, um, but it, 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 he didn't play it that well. It also seems that he wanted to be at the center of what was transpiring in uh, Afghanistan. It's almost as if 
this was the uh, other end of the book uh, that he had uh, in itself written because he was key to the Bonn uh, summit in which the creation of the post-Taliban Afghanistan had been created, which in itself had a number of inherent flaws. And then he has overseen the end of that very system that he helped create. Uh, and yes, I think history will probably judge him uh, over all of this. Yeah, and not, and not very well, I suppose, is what you're, the conclusion that you're, you're drawing. No, I, I, you're, you're right about the Bond Summit and his importance in, um, in bringing together some of the old warlords, putting the old warlords back into power right in 2002 and 2003. And that was, I think, that was the fundamental failure right at the beginning of the war, which is one of the reasons I argue in, in my new book, The Long War. It's one of the reasons why it made the Afghan conflict such a long conflict and such a difficult conflict for the um, NATO allies and partner nations who, who went into Afghanistan, because from the very beginning, the old warlords who the Taliban had defeated in the mid-90s when they came to power um, were re-enfranchised by the bond deal and by what America did in 2002 by giving them lots of money for effectively exchanging information with Al-Qaeda. Those individuals came back into power. And uh, for many Afghans, it looked as if the international community had effectively taken a side in a civil war um, that we had supported uh, uh, people who uh, they had not been very popular back in the mid-1990s before the Taliban came to power, people who uh, were bandits, who fought among themselves, and those individuals came back into power in 2001-2002. Zama Khalazad was one of the people who sort of re-enfranchised them, and that always made the intervention in Afghanistan far harder to, uh, to achieve a success out of because all of the time um, you were working against this uh, system of, uh, of these bandits and warlords who'd returned to power, who entrenched corruption really from the very beginning of the, uh, of the, of the years of the, of the post 9-11 intervention in Afghanistan. Absolutely. And in the, your book, The Long War, which is a very important uh, contribution to the whole Afghanistan dynamic and will stand the test of time. There was another important aspect that you covered and one that in many ways we can't talk about Afghanistan without bringing this factor in, which is the role of Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, their ties are perpetually intertwined. What has been the role of Pakistan in the Taliban's return to power, both in terms of the takeover of Afghanistan, but also helping the Taliban form its own government. I'm reminded of that incident where the then head of the ISI in 2021, Faiz Hamid, happened to turn up at the lobby of the Serena Hotel in Kabul sipping tea. And it looked like a somewhat orchestrated uh, visual for the world. Uh, but it's no coincidence that within a couple of days of him being there, the Taliban formed his, the Taliban formed their regime. So how intrinsic is Pakistan's role? Yeah, I mean, we can come back in a minute, perhaps, to talking about the, the Taliban and how they, they formed their government. But uh, no, absolutely central. And uh, uh, Pakistan has been wanting, um, really, for the last uh, 40 or 50 years, going back even before the Russian war, 
to, if not have um, a government in Afghanistan that was completely on their side, at least have a government that wasn't going to knife them in the back. They, uh, Pakistan has this, I think, very flawed um, military doctrine called strategic depth, which give, gives them the sense that because they're a relatively narrow country facing this huge, um, in their mind, you know, Hindu Raj to their east in India, um, <clears throat> with the with the constant friction of, of, of the dispute in Kashmir threatening to turn into uh, a shooting war, um, they want to have a compliant um, Afghanistan to their rear. Now, if you look at the map, um, there isn't you know there isn't any military value in in having a compliant Afghanistan because there's a huge mountain range across the northwest frontier between um, Afghanistan and Pakistan, and and the 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 ability to to manoeuvre across that, uh, that frontier remains as limited today as it did when the British tried to cross it and tried to pacify it um, uh, during three wars in the, in the 19th and early 20th century. There are only three navigable military passes across that mountain range, the Khyber Pass, of course, being the most famous. So I think Pakistan has um, a, a rather flawed sense of you know, the need to have a compliant uh, government in, in in Afghanistan, but it's one that they've been as a as a matter of national statecraft, they've been wanting to control uh, what goes on there for a very long time. And of course, you've got to remember that all this goes back to the war against the Russians in the 1980s, when um, America and Saudi Arabia, in particular, uh, of the the donor nations, put a huge amount of money and weapons into Afghanistan, but through Pakistan. And it went through, the ISI insisted that it went through the ISI, the, the Pakistani Intelligence uh, Agency. And that was the beginning, if you like, of this sense of um, the Pakistani military state, which got very bloated, frankly, on the corruption in the 1980s. Um, and then it had a very strong sense of its ability to, having uh, 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 used the Mujahideen to defeat the Russians, of its ability to manage things in Afghanistan, and wanted to continue to manage things over the next 20 or 30 years after that. I mean, I think you mentioned General Fize's uh, visit um, uh, a couple of weeks after the Taliban took Kabul in August 2021, um, and that sense of, of, of him bringing Taliban heads together and, and forcing effectively the government that uh, Pakistan wanted, significantly led by Haqqani network figures, and the Haqqani network are a uh, an insurgent group who've been allied with the Taliban since uh, 9-11, but they go back to the Mujahideen days in the 1980s. And the, the, the leaders of the Haqqani network are very much based in the frontier region of Pakistan, in North and South Waziristan in particular. Um, so they're absolutely clients of, um, of the Pakistani government. But increasingly, people are beginning to think, well, does Pakistan really control these people? Um, and after all these years of Pakistan wanting a client state in Afghanistan, uh, wanting its own government in power, um, you know, it, it, it's, there is a certain sense of sort of buyer's remorse, if you like. Now they've got it. Um, they're not completely sure um, what to do with it. So there's a couple of things I want to ask you about that <clears throat> aspect. Uh, one, one thing we, we were briefly discussing is this formation of the Taliban uh, regime. And you wrote this very interesting uh, article in The Spectator 
punch up at the palace, which was about the squabble between Mullah Barada, whom the West had hoped would be able to lead a somewhat moderate Taliban regime, and the Haqqani network, whom we were also uh, talking about, in which it actually turned into a physical uh, fight between their two factions. And ultimately, it was the Haqqanis that came out uh, on top. So is Afghanistan now effectively run by the Haqqani network, whom we should actually point out are also a prescribed terrorist group? Yes, I mean, it's an extraordinary situation that um, uh, the interior minister of, of Afghanistan is someone who's on an American wanted list and um, almost certainly the person most responsible for the largest suicide bombings um, of the last uh, 15 years in particular. I mean, I remember in 2017, there was an enormous, well, I think one of the biggest ones when I was, I was in Kabul, about 150 people killed and that absolutely rocked the centre of town in the middle of the morning while people were going to school, children were going to school, people were going to work. And that individual who, you know, we believe uh, carried out that attack, masterminded that attack, is now the interior minister of the country. And you do have to kind of scratch your head a bit to, to, to wonder if the Taliban really do want international legitimacy. They've also recently um, held a... Um, a, a parade of the families of, of suicide bombers and have, have sort of promoted themselves as being the most successful country in the world that has used suicide bombing as a, as a military tactic. Again, you know, not something that's designed to um, endear them with the, with the international community. So I think there has been something of a shock for the American negotiators who had worked with Barada, you mentioned Motaki, um, Stanixai and others um, in those long negotiations in Doha to, to deliver a deal. And those individuals had spent a long time living in Doha, their families are there. And there was a sense, uh, as you say, that perhaps the West you know, could deal with them. Um, but as we understand at the moment, and it's, I have to say, you know, watching what's going on inside the Taliban administration, it's very difficult to work out exactly who's in, in control. But certainly the Haqqani network came out on top last summer and autumn. They still call it an interim government. There's still some sense that they're looking for something more inclusive. But all of the inclusivity that the Taliban have brought in is only among other Taliban groups. So um, they're dispensing power among their own, uh, their own people, um, not moving it more widely into Afghan society. And, you know, it began, as you say, with that extraordinary incident in the in the Afghan palace where there was a, a brawl between people, including as, as I heard, people throwing thermos flasks at each other of green tea, you know, spilling green tea all over the place. And after that, Mullah Barada went down to Kandahar for a few weeks to sort of lick his wounds and to, to regroup for the, the, the Kandahari so-called uh, Taliban. And for international analysts, it's very difficult to work out, you know, who we might be able to to, to best do business with um, between these, these two groups, because there is one argument to say that the Kandaharis are actually more socially conservative. So things like girls' schools, things like, um, you know, the other, you know, social, uh, civil aspects of society that people want, there's an argument for saying that perhaps their Kani network wouldn't be so tough on those, although they want to be tough in terms of, of, of their sort of international jihadi credibility 
in order to be able to continue to recruit young men to their cause. There are so many different factions and compulsions here, which is what is coming clearly across in, in our discussion. And then to throw a further dynamic into the mix to make it even more complicated is that you have the Taliban uh, cousin, I guess, which is the TTP, the Tariqi Taliban Pakistan, uh, which seem to be operating and growing uh, in the ascendancy following the Taliban, uh, the Afghan Taliban return in Afghanistan. You, you mentioned earlier about Pakistan's buyer's uh, remorse. One thing the Pakistanis kept talking about was that if there was a uh, Afghan Taliban regime in Afghanistan, it would limit and control the activities of the TTP. On the contrary, what we've seen is that the TTP have actually become much stronger. And it's one of these very odd paradoxes that defines Afghanistan-Pakistan, where you've got the Pakistani military that are sympathetic and supportive to the Afghan Taliban, but the, uh, the Pakistani military are at odds with the Pakistan Taliban, and yet the Pakistan Taliban and the Afghan Taliban end up cooperating uh, because they have that tribal connection. So how does one... Uh, somehow demystify uh, this dynamic? Yeah, I mean, I think um, th there's, uh, it was a real surprise, again, as it was a surprise that the Taliban haven't really attempted to have a more inclusive government or do any of the things that the international community might have, have, have thought would try and win them more acceptance, such as a nod to girls' education, etc. Um, it's also been a surprise that they haven't reined back um, their, uh, their terrorist, uh, um, uh, other terrorist groups who operate in Afghanistan. The TTP, you mentioned the most prominent of them. And this really raises questions about how much uh, power the Pakistani state and Pakistani ISI really has over the Taliban, because Pakistan asked the Taliban to broker a peace deal with the TTP, and it didn't happen. In fact, the opposite happened. Um, there was uh, an, up, an upsurge of TTP, violent activity, and there have been clashes between the Taliban and Pakistani forces along the uh, disputed borderline, um, which Afghanistan has never recognised the, the Durand line as an international border. Pakistan has been fencing it, and the Taliban have been ripping down some of the border fencing. So there's a sense in which this is a, a pretty difficult client for Pakistan to have, and I think some other countries are also who were, were willing to, to have the Taliban in power um, are also looking at this and saying, well, we're not getting the guarantees that we wanted on security. And in particular, I'm thinking of China. Um, uh, China, who have a border, a very narrow border right up in the northeast uh, of the Wakhan corridor of Afghanistan with Afghanistan, have been wanting guarantees from the Taliban that they would not support Uyghur separatists who have been operating from Afghanistan in the past. And the Taliban have not, have not given that assurance. One of the other aspects then, uh, David, that's very important to Afghanistan, and, and it also is an aspect of the Doha deal uh, and relevant to the annexes that you were talking about earlier, is Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda has this relationship with uh, the Taliban. And even though the Taliban has made many comments and commitments that they will not allow Afghanistan to be a cesspool for terrorism, they have never actually outrightly condemned al-Qaeda 
uh, nor have they uh, tried to hand over al-Qaeda figures to uh, the uh, NATO alliance or, or to the United States. The other aspect is, is that there were al-Qaeda fighters that were embedded with the Taliban during their conquest of Afghanistan. Where do you believe this relationship is between al-Qaeda and the Taliban? Yeah, it's, again, it's a deeply worrying aspect of the, of the Taliban. There's a belief among analysts that um, al-Qaeda, who have been very quiet in recent months, are operating um, a policy of strategic silence. Um, in order to allow the Taliban to try and secure the as good as they can get in terms of international recognition to secure, you know, um, the unfreezing of, of aid money, etc. Um, but it's not worked um, it, because uh, uh, there's been very clear analysis. And the most recent was the UN Sanctions Committee, who in their six monthly reports, which they do for Afghanistan, um, only recently came out and said al-Qaeda are operating openly and um, effectively in Afghanistan. They're still allied to, um, to the Taliban. There's been no uh, real severance of links. Um, uh, um, Osama bin Laden's bodyguard has returned to Afghanistan to live and he lives openly in the country. Um, and other senior al-Qaeda figures have been, have been openly visiting um, visiting the Taliban, and there's a strong sense in this sanctions committee report um, that it's very much business as usual and no change in terms of, of, of the Taliban's uh, continued links with, uh, with al-Qaeda. And uh, they also mention in this report that during the summer last year, during the fighting last year, there were, there were tactical alliances between the Taliban and Islamic State even against America. Now, on the whole, ta the Taliban have been fighting against the Islamic State Khorasan province, ISKP, um, in, uh, in the east and the north of, of Afghanistan. But um, at least last summer, they were, they were tactical allies. So I think you're seeing the Taliban, you know, uh, not really moving in the directions that the international community hoped they might move in order to win recognition and acceptance and become more, a more normal uh, government. Um, but instead, needing to continue to promote violence uh, um, as a way of, um, of both uh, suppressing the population and of recruiting young men. So they don't lose young fighters to these other, you know, potentially more extremist jihadi groups. You said there are these concerns about the fact that the Taliban are not moving in the direction that the West uh, has been hoping for. In, in relationship to that, You've also got the narcotics factor, uh, because we know that the Taliban uh, and, for example, the Haqqani network have invested very heavily in criminal enterprise, which uh, Afghanistan has unfortunately been succumbed to by uh, the narcotics, especially heroin. And increasingly, uh, methamphetamine seems to be a new uh, product that is being uh, produced inside uh, the country. Do you uh, do you have concerns that we will see a proliferation of narcotics now that the Taliban are back, even though publicly they may condemn it, privately they seem to do uh, other things? Just like, as you mentioned, the relationship between the Taliban and ISKP, which doesn't get enough attention. The narcotics aspect also doesn't seem to get enough focus. I think it's one of the most fundamental challenges that the Taliban face. They've clearly been um, uh, supported by 
poppy uh, money and 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 money from other drugs, as you mentioned, some very clever ways of of um, processing the ephedra plant for um, uh, for for, for, for uh, amphetamines in recent months. So there's a sense in which the Taliban are you know buoyed by this criminal enterprise, and while in principle, as you say, you know they'd like to end the drugs trade, they'd like to end drugs growing in Afghanistan. Um, it's going to be very difficult to see how they can do it without losing support of you know very significant people who uh, support them up to now. And again, that's going to be one of the real challenges for the international community if they're going to try and engage with the Taliban and try to unfreeze assets, move towards something, if not recognition, at least you know a pragmatic acceptance that they're they're the government. So. Um, you know, some World Bank programs to fund schooling and to fund clinics, etc. So that the Afghan people are not uh, damaged by the fact that they've got this, um, you know, this effectively t- um, um, a tyrannical government um, in Afghanistan. I think it's going to be very difficult for um, uh, for the international community to do that if if the Taliban remained buoyed by poppy money. That is going to be a huge challenge, indeed. There are two other countries I wanted to bring into this discussion. One is Russia and the other is China. Let's talk about China first. How important is China now for uh, Afghanistan? Because we are increasingly seeing uh, contact between the Chinese uh, embassy in Kabul. Uh, There have been meetings with the Haqqani network. What does China want from the Taliban regime? And is it going to be possible to achieve what China wants? In China and Russia, the embassies never closed. And although they haven't recognized the Taliban, they, 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 they have a you know, de facto um, diplomatic exchange because their ambassadors are still there and their embassies are still staffed. And there's a sense in which they, you know, they want to treat Afghanistan like any other Country. I mean, China has enormous desires to uh, to uh, to mine rare earth metals from Afghanistan. The huge um, untapped resources in terms of, of, of various other rare um, uh, um, rare metals and uh, precious stones. There's also the world's largest unexcavated copper mine in Afghanistan at Maysinak, not very far south of Kabul in Logar province, which China has the concession on. But have never been able to extract the copper because of the um, because of the insecurity. Well, now Afghanistan is secure. Um, is China going to be able to move move in? And I think we're still seeing, you know, quite a lot of reservations on the part of China. There have been reports of some Chinese citizens being arrested by the Taliban. There have been some arbitrary detentions of of, of Western uh, businessmen who've tried to who've tried to do business with with the Taliban and, and others in Afghanistan. So there's there's it's a it's a very mixed picture for people who are you know beginning to try to do business in the country. And I think China is looking you know in a in a pretty worried way at what's happening. You've got to remember that China's so-called all-weather friendship um, is with Pakistan, um, their closest ally in the region. And so, so China and, and Pakistan will be operating as one. And as we've seen, Pakistan is finding it much more difficult to uh, manage the Taliban um, than, it, than, it, than, it, than it was before. I think Russia, you mentioned, you know, also has um, some sort of sense of sort of buyer's remorse. They were willing to 
uh, let the Taliban continue to fight against the Americans. You know, uh, it was it was um, a, a wonderful, beautiful symmetry, if you like, for Russia that the Americans were defeated um, in Afghanistan, taking twice as long to be defeated as the Russians were um, um, a generation before. And so that sense of, of, of defeating the Russians in the very backyard where um, America had funded the Mujahideen to defeat the Russians before um, the Americans being defeated this time, I think was very sweet for them. Um, but again, you know, we understand that they're finding it difficult to, to, to work with the Taliban and to relate to them and to do the kind of business that they want to do. And, you know, to stop uh, terrorism coming across the frontier to the to the uh, the Central Asian states who Russia seen very much as within their security orbit. I don't know if you saw, David, the recent uh, Taliban message that was uh, released by their foreign ministry in which they spoke about uh, peace between Russia and Ukraine. It seemed very bizarre as to yes. how the Taliban uh, now are talking about global peace. Well, they're operating, they're trying to operate like a government. I thought that was a certain, there was a certain amount of sort of, um, of, of overextension of, you know, their ability to operate internationally. I think they're trying to show to the international community that if, if they were properly recognised, then they could, you know, they could engage on, on, on some of these issues. But I have to say, you know, people who've been talking to them, uh, they're not very successfully running a central administration yet. They're collecting revenue. Um, collecting a lot of revenue for, for considering the collapse of the economy, um, their revenue collection is, you know, at a, at a higher proportion than uh, than the previous government, and you know they're not corrupt. So the money's going into a central fund, but it's very unclear what they're doing with it. They're not, you know, managing the state, so they're not certainly not managing foreign affairs with with any of the uh, any of the sort of um, of the professionalism that you would expect from a modern state. And I think that's that's you know that, that, that's the challenge that the international community now face, the West in particular. After you know we lost the war, it's very clear. Um, but there's a there's there's quite you know we shouldn't lose the peace now. And I think um, you know I would urge you know, NATO countries to you know, not necessarily to recognise the Taliban, but certainly to try to support some of the people who we left behind. It's a completely different generation. In Afghanistan from the generation who came before. And I think in many ways the Taliban are finding Afghanistan an alien country. Uh, it's a very different country to, you know, when I, I was with the Taliban when they took Kabul in 1996 and I was there in 2001 when they were pushed out. And it, it's a very different country then to what it is now. Um, you know, younger people um, with high, high expectations of a different kind of life who've been educated, um, who look at, you know, women's rights um, as an expectation, not just in the cities, but in the countryside. Um, and I think that uh, the international community would do well to support media organisations, to support women's networks, in order to enable um, Afghan society itself to recover from the shocks of this enormous disruption that happened when the Taliban took over last summer, and to for, for people to be able to, you know, withstand that pressure and to, to, to have the confidence to be able to decide, um, you know, their own futures. Because clearly there's not going to be another international military intervention in Afghanistan, certainly in the lifetime of any of the people 
um, who were involved in this one because I think it was it was such a difficult operation. The Afghans are on their own um, um, in, in those terms, but the, le the, the least we can do is to give them the, the confidence and the ability to be able to withstand some of the propaganda from the Taliban, which means supporting media organizations, women's organizations, etc. Um, and that feels like a fairly simple thing to be able to continue to do. The role of women's rights and civil liberties that you have been talking about is so fundamentally important to Afghanistan's future. But the problem also seems to be that the Taliban are very reluctant to recognize women's rights uh, and in many ways still have that mindset from the 1990s where women were to play no role whatsoever in society. How does one get the Taliban to try and make changes to their very uh, stiff doctrine uh, that has uh, been the cornerstone uh, of their belief system? Because without women in Afghanistan having a right to live, function, teach, be educated, Afghanistan will never recover uh, whatsoever. And it seems the Taliban are always very reluctant to uh, make any tangible changes for women's rights. And the international community seems to be trying to convince them. There's some talk that goes on, but then we don't see anything on the ground that is effective. What, what more can yeah, I, th I, don't, I don't think it's going to come from international pressure. I think it's going to come from within, which is why, I, as I say, I think we need to support Afghan women and men to be able to take those issues on for themselves. And I think, you know, the, the changes that were made over the last 20 years were not just in the cities. Um, we, we, for, for people who um, fought the war or were involved, you know, in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, you know, people in NATO, it was, it was a profound shock last summer. Many people were really upset because, you know, they'd given, they'd served, they'd given a lot of, uh, of, of, of their time, attention, watch good friends die to, to try and, you know, actually to build a better society in Afghanistan at the heart of, of what, was, what, what was going on there. And I, so I think it's been very difficult for people who were fighting there before from, from, from NATO countries. But I think if we... You know, it'll be even more difficult if we don't uh, um, preserve and build resilience in the society that we did build. So I think it wasn't a complete failure, the war. The war was lost, but it wasn't a failure in terms of leaving behind a society with different expectations. And as I say, I mean, not just in the cities, if I could give you one very quick anecdote. I was working on a programme last year to support... Uh, communications around the peace process, uh, uh, an American-funded program. And one of the projects that we were doing was, was quite a simple um, uh, a piece of research, going into villages and asking people what they thought about the peace process and what they wanted to get out of it. And we, we said to this local uh, NGO who was doing the work, uh, we need to have 50% men and 50% women. And in the cities, of course, they were running joint meetings, but expecting that in rural Pashtun areas, they would be separate meetings. And um, so that happened in Kandahar. And then they went down to Nimrus province, way down in the southwest in the desert, very remote Pashtun area, you know, fundamentalist, um, sort of Taliban supporting, you know, population um, in the past. And they went into 
at the district centre and uh, were expecting to run these separate meetings. And the women of Nimra's province said, no, 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 we want to be in a joint meeting with the men. Um, in fact, we want the men to hear what we have to say. And that was new. That wasn't a Western um, organisation coming in and saying, you know, women here need to, to be able to do this. This was women demanding for themselves. And it's, it's preserving that capacity um, that I think the international community, you know, would do well to support in, in, in the coming months and years. Well, that's a really important story about the tangible results that have been achieved in Afghanistan, the hard-earned gains that are so important to keep and, and not to lose. One last question, David, is that during the middle of this uh, crisis that's taking place with the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine, there has been talk about the fact that the Taliban have been conducting activities where they've been taking people away uh, and carrying out extrajudicial uh, murders in order to deal with those people they deemed as their enemies uh, in the hope that the world's attention is not on Afghanistan so they can get away with a lot of things. Does that worry you? Yeah, I think um, yeah, the um, one of the things, and I, and I argue this very strongly in, in, in The Long War, my, my, my book on the war, where when I interviewed, I should just say one thing about that book, that it, one of the key aspects of it is that I interviewed all of the commanding officers of, of, uh, during the, the key combat years of, of ISAF and Resolute Support. And it's a, it's a book about military leadership as, as much as it's a book about Afghanistan, the challenges that individual soldiers face, but, that, but magnified by the challenges of their commanders. And I think, you know, I, I think in, in, in doing that and trying to understand, you know, Afghanistan, I saw the distractions of other parts of the international community. So when the Iraq war happened, um, and there was a, an immediate uh, change of focus from Afghanistan. It was a real problem for um, what people were trying to do in terms of, of, of both of countering terrorism and then ultimately this nation-building project that, that emerged from, uh, from the beginning of the, uh, of the Afghan war. And I think there's a danger that Ukraine now is, of course, going to suck all of the oxygen out internationally from Afghanistan and from a number of other for a number of other places, and I think it's a real shame. Whether the Taliban have used that as a cover for what is a new campaign of repression, um, I, I'm not sure that's true because they, you know, this house-to-house -house, uh, searches that they've been doing, particularly in Kabul, street by street, every single house in the city, was quite a methodical campaign that must have taken quite a few weeks to to organise and to plan. So. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure whether that was, uh, that was the, the reason for it, but I certainly worry going forward that now we're really focused and quite rightly on, um, you know, the magnitude of what's going on in Ukraine, on war in Europe, which is, of course, fundamental NATO business um, uh, that, that Afghanistan is, you know, is forgotten again. And for those of us who've, who, you know, spend a lot of time and effort you know, working in Afghanistan, writing about Afghanistan, and for the Afghan people, I think that's a shame. Absolutely. And it's an important reminder as to what is still there to save. And there's a lot to save in Afghanistan, because it's not just for the Afghans. It has global ramifications, as you've been outlining throughout our discussion. Well, David, 
once again, thank you so much for spending the time with us on NATO Deep Dive and talking to us about your experiences and your book, The Long War, is certainly something that I very strongly recommend people to read if they want to understand about Afghanistan. So thank you, David, again, for joining us. Sajjan, thanks for the recommendation and, and thanks very much. It's been very good to talk to you. It's been our pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Dive. I'm your host, Dr. Sajjan Gohel. Deep Dive is brought to you by NATO's Defense Education Enhancement Program. The production and research team are Marcus Andreopoulos and Victoria Jones. For additional content, including full transcripts of each episode, please visit deepportal.hq.nato.int forward slash deep dive. Please note that the views, information, or opinions expressed in the deep dive series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of NATO or DEEP.